Hi, I'm Dan Wally Baker filling in for Al Tharp. Welcome to Vietnola, the show about being Vietnamese in New Orleans, coming to you straight from the Big Easy. Xin chào quý vị. Đây là bài Vietnola, chương trình pháp hành về cộng đồng Việt Nam ở New Orleans từ Thankful, New Orleans. Today on the show, we've got some ancient wisdom, some lessons on being a polite Vietnamese person, news, and a conversation with our guest, Daniel Nguyen. A Vietnamese-American transplant from California, Daniel Nguyen moved to New Orleans four years ago and started working with Mary Queen of Vietnam Community Development Corporation almost immediately. Today, Daniel Nguyen is the Environmental Justice and Workforce Development Coordinator at Mary Queen of Vietnam CDC. He's helped scores of people navigate the BP claims process. Working directly with community members at a post-BP spill forum, he served as a lead in developing an aquaponics project that would be able to harmoniously combine raising fish and growing produce in the backyards of recently unemployed Vietnamese fisher people of New Orleans East. Nguyen recently worked with Bridge the Gulf and the Institute for Southern Studies for the issuance of the report entitled Troubled Waters, Two Years After the BP Oil Disaster, A Struggling Gulf Coast Calls for National Leadership for Recovery. Today, he joins us to talk about aquaponics, his recent work in Vietnam, and his new projects, including urban gardening in New Orleans East. Hi, Daniel. Hi. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the show. Thanks. We're excited to have you. And we're excited to hear not only um, for you to educate Dan Wally what y'all have already done and the new stuff you've done with the urban garden that I've seen kind of gradually grow. Uh, can you start with the aquaponics project and how mm -hmm. that happened? Yeah, so the aquaponics project started in 2010 after the oil spill. And what we kind of did was we had a uh, community summit following the spill to address long-term issues that the community was facing, um, mostly at the time um, around unemployment and then food security issues. Um, our folks before the oil spill and even before Katrina relied heavily on the Gulf for subsistence use, feeding their families and neighbors and also um, agriculture as a way of doing this as well. So with the oil spill cutting off um, access to the Gulf for at that time an unforeseen amount of time, um, we had to find an innovative way to address food access, not only with produce, but also with, uh, with um, seafood as well. Um, so during this community summit, they actually brought up the idea of aquaponics. This is something that has been done and is still being done in Vietnam um, as a potential vehicle to not only create jobs, but also to address food access on both those fronts. Um, so that's where the project was born. We did um, numerous work with uh, Oxfam America, uh, John Hopkins, Cary Business School, uh, MIT, to really flush out the details and see if it was feasible um, in our Gulf Coast context. And, um, today, we've actually been able to incubate about 11 to 12 farmers, um, forming a farmer's cooperative and selling regularly to uh, New Orleans restaurants, um, now on Good Eggs, an online distribution company, and uh, moving to farmer's markets in the very near future. Do you s foresee expanding that number of 12 to double or more? What, 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 what do you think the yield is could be? Um, I think the opportunities are limitless at this point. I think we've definitely shown that one, this economic model is very viable for creating income, but two, is that it's a really effective way of, of uh, workforce development, not only for the elders in the community, but also for the youth. We have a, um, we're flushing out a youth engagement program or component right now, and I think the limiting factor is actually land, um, because agriculture is unique in the sense that your ability to generate revenue is kind of limited by your access to land, mm -hmm. um, because you're actually literally growing your own product. Um, so I think if land was an issue, we would definitely really sky's the limit in terms of job creation right now. Hmm. And how long did it take 
It sounds like you had a lot of very um, esteemed partners involved, but also probably very bureaucratic as mm -hmm. well. How long did it take you guys from initiation of the idea to up and running? So the idea was formalized in about November of 2010, and we really didn't get off the ground formally until the winter of 2011. Um, it's not so, bad, though. Yeah, about a year. It took... Um, you know, the longest part was doing the market study, the feasibility analysis, and the drawing up a business plan, which John Hopkins Carey Business School did. And Oxfam came in right after that to provide the initial capital mm -hmm. to uh, help the entrepreneurs that we were developing, um, you know, uh, start up. Um, given that the economic context of a lot of folks in New Orleans have been accruing debt since Katrina, so that economic context made it really difficult for folks to take on loans or um, access, I guess, traditional forms of capital to start up a business. So. Um, one thing led to another, and that, that kind of, we were blessed with, you know, Oxfam falling in right after the, the business plan so that we can get started right away. So apart from the, the commercial um, and the sort of industry aspects of this project, there's a sustenance component, too. Tell us about that. Yeah, so, you know, the, a lot of folks came from fishing in agricultural villages in Vietnam, and a lot of agriculture is rooted in just feeding your family first and your community members. And when folks came over um, post-1975 to Village de Luz, um, the, the Saturday farmer's market, which has gained notoriety throughout the city, Judge uh, Home, um, really started as a venue for folks to sell their product after having fed their families and traded and bartered with family and, uh, and neighbors. Um, so this was already kind of a root practice of the Vietnamese community in New Orleans East. Um, so with this in mind, our growers um, continue that tradition of growing for their family, friends, and community first, making sure that we can feed ourselves, and then with the leftovers, or no, I wouldn't say with the leftovers, but with the surplus from that, we're actually um, selling into the metropolitan area for commercial uh, retail value. So I know that a lot of the folks who are in Village Les were former fisher people or agricultural people. Mm -hmm. How was that transition to this type of technology? Because I don't know about you, but my Vietnamese family is incredibly stubborn yeah. and pretty set in their ways i love you mom and dad but you know i mean this was a, this is a whole new technology and i've seen it in the backyards mm -hmm. of one of your farmers incredibly visually not what you think of when you think of farming right um the transition the skill set and the mentality was there i mean in the fishing industry we had a lot of folks that are already entrepreneurs um you know really self-taught um especially the boat captains and boat owners um, and then also having exposure to agriculture and fishing, the transition made it easy. I, I think much easier if we, you know, approached it from a different sector. Um, I think the only difference was the actual nitty-gritty technology itself of, you know, how big of a pump do you need, um, aeration, those kind of things. And that we were able to, to work with um, aquaculture system technologies in New Orleans to provide us that technical assistance. So we can handle those details while, they, while the actual entrepreneurs can actually um, focus on the actual business itself. Um, nice. yeah. Well, for our listeners, listeners who uh, are unfamiliar with aquaponics, can you break down maybe aquaponics 101? Um, what are the component pieces? What all is going on in this new technology? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so aquaponics is a, I wouldn't, it's, it's, it's coming around and reemerging as a very popular form of urban agriculture, but it's in essence creating a symbiotic environment where you're raising fish and using the effluent or the waste water from fish ponds or fish tanks to fertilize essentially um, plants that are um, floating on top of water in, in raft beds in our case, or you can do 
um, in PVC pipes with the, the water just flowing past. And it just mimics the environment where bacteria is using, or we're using bacteria that naturally occur in the environment to convert um, fish waste into fertilizer to plants. And then in, in turn, the plants filter the water for the fish. So it's a symbiotic relationship between the two. And like hydroponics, it's a soilless growing system. So f for a place like New Orleans East with limited access to... Right, exactly. So, um, and on top of the limited access to soil itself, um, you know, we're... We've, we face potential for soil contamination because we're engaging in soilless agriculture. We also mitigate exposure to the, you know, potential soil contamination that plagues a lot of New Orleans. Um, so that's one of many, uh, I guess, key highlights of, of aquaponics. So you look like you're in your 20s to me. Did you do the translation of the technical assistance? Um, we tried our best. Yeah, okay. I mean, you know, a lot of it was explaining the concept as opposed to terminology. I mean, it wasn't until I went to Vietnam that I actually found out that there is a word for aquaponics in Vietnamese. We were just literally translating the concept. Um, but the words you learned in Vietnam, would people here recognize that word? Uh, I mean, I came back and we talked about it, and it did make sense. A lot of folks said it did make sense. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like in English, if you're not familiar with aquaponics, and it sounds like kind of just like a made-up word, but really it's rooted in... Um, something. So I feel like, you know, it's, it's less ubiquitous, I guess, than, than one might imagine. But, uh -huh. yeah. That was that. Talk a little bit about that process. I mean, it, it's a whole new technology mm -hmm. with the non-existent vocabulary in a language that's our parents yeah. and our <laughs> second language. Oh, it was really difficult. It was a lot of paragraph descriptions for what might have been one word or one sentence in English, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and a lot of it, I think what we did instead to mitigate this was we, we kind of steered away you from pointed, the, we pointed <laughs> a lot and, and said, let's do it instead of just talking about it. So we, instead uh -huh. of just lecturing, we, we built a demonstration greenhouse and system. Um, and most of the training actually was going out to this greenhouse and saying, okay, you know, we stumbled a little bit with explaining the concept and maybe you didn't understand this all the way, but now we're actually going to do it. Like, you know, you're going to create the soilless medium. You're going to see the water pumps. You're going to get your hands dirty, if you will. And I think this was more in line of the traditional ways of learning mm -hmm. that our folks were, were more accustomed to, you know, like cooking, for example, they don't write down, my, my mom doesn't write down recipes. It's more like by feel right. and you just know by doing and practicing. She's like, just do. Yeah. And like, oh, yeah. yeah, thanks. Yeah. Taste it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that helps. Like a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I'm like, great. <laughs> I'm more used to like teaspoons and stuff. And same with um, when we were trying to figure this out, even in English, I was like, you know, we had to do all these calculations. But with uh, when we actually brought it to our community members, it was so empirical and hands-on that, you know, some, some of the theory just becomes background noise, if you will. So did you study agriculture in school? Um, no, I studied biology with an emphasis on uh, ecology, behavior, and evolution. Okay. Um, but I did work for a farm in San Diego, um, not doing aquaponics, more in-ground agriculture. Um, but aquaponics was on my radar, but didn't really explore it until 2010. Until you had to. Yeah. Until, yeah. <laughs> but now this has grown into an education program you said 11 farmers on board yeah had a partnership with delgado is that correct? yeah with delgado um they helped come um develop the curriculum with us and they provide technical assistance in terms of hire helping us hire and train a community trainer um in aquaponics so that our community can actually educate themselves um 
And now we're actually expanding our partnership with uh, the Milne Inspiration Center uh, with a youth program called Amped H12, which is going to teach 25 youth in the Gentilly area about sustainable agriculture and entrepreneurial skills and, you know, different business models, such as the cooperative business model. Um, I was just going to ask, has this expanded outside the Vietnamese New Orleanian communities? Yeah. Is this the first time that that's happening? Yes, and it's the first time, and we're definitely at the point where I think we can do that. Um, mm -hmm. So much of what we've been doing so far is building capacity within our own community first. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the first and foremost challenge that we face is the language access barrier, and until we can organize our folks and build the capacity, it's really difficult for us at that early stage to bring on folks from other communities. Mm -hmm. um, so I think now we're at this, this point or this juncture in which we can do that. So for one set up for a single household to have an aquaponics feature in their home, mm -hmm. in their backyard, what does that cost? So we were giving out micro grants of about $4,000 and that produced or that was able to build a system plus a greenhouse that could probably harvest, I mean if we use basil as a baseline you could probably harvest at least uh, 50 pounds of basil twice a week. It's, it's actually oh, pretty, yeah, it's, it's pretty productive. Um, you know, we've tested, and, it's, and we use basil as a baseline just because it grows kind of all year round in, in greenhouses pretty well, but we've tested things like tomatoes, cucumbers, taro, beets, lettuce, all types of things have been able to grow in our aquaponic system. So the options are limitless um, in, in that regard. So how about on the fish side of the equation? Have have we confirmed with some taste tests or uh, what kinds of <laughs> what kinds of fish are coming are out you, of? Are these? you trying to say you're willing to help uh, with the taste <laughs> test, the research? I'm I'm prepared. We we actually haven't eaten any of our fish just because the fish actually take a while to grow. Um, right now we're actually at a point where we we're about to eat some of our uh, hybrid striped sea bass and bluegill. Um, but traditionally our our community members have opted to grow koi or raised koi rather. Um, just they're popular exactly yeah. exactly they look they're aesthetically beautiful um they hold a cultural significance for wisdom yeah. and longevity like um, my planter over there there it's it is cool. exactly exactly <laughs> you know. are people like water features dan yeah <laughs> with fish Lovely. in them <laughs> yeah they said you know if they were starving they would eat it you know <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> not the first option we'll not the first choice we have to <laughs> yep. um, but no it's always good feng shui to have like a water feature in your backyard or even in your office so you'll see a lot of like little trickling fountains in people's homes and stuff and if you have a little pond koi is a must-have Right on, right on. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll get back to you in a month after we uh, have our first hybrid striped bass for dinner. So <laughs> I'll make sure you have my number. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you've also expanded to non-aquaponics, to traditional yeah. farming as well, correct? Yes. And that's kind of becoming, it seems to be becoming kind of a thing in New Orleans, urban gardening. Right. Uh, we have so many empty lots that were once blighted, the houses got demoed. Right. We're very densely built, and they're ne you're now seeing a spread of community gardens. Mm -hmm. What does that look like in New Orleans East? So New Orleans East is a, a little more unique in, in the sense that the, the, the uh, development itself is not as densely packed as in the city. So when we're talking about lots, we're talking about an empty lot for us was about three, four acres. So that's, that's the kind of scale that we were working with. Um, 
and you That's know huge for new orleans yeah that is huge yeah. and our folks really had this idea i mean even before urban gardening kind of became a thing where they we called it guerrilla farming where they would find empty plots of land and just grow as much stuff as they could to feed themselves and their families and and you know a lot of our older girls say it's, it's therapeutic you know it's, it reminds them of back home in vietnam it takes their mind off of stressful things as maybe unpaid bills or things like that so it's, it's also combined with therapy and exercise um, despite the toil and the temperatures. Yeah, despite the toil and the temperatures, you know, and I think they actually, they enjoy it because, you know, they have a reason to wake up really early in the morning. They, they have their afternoon nap and le uh, leisure time, and then they come back late afternoon to kind of finish um, their daily uh, chores or tasks, if you will, outside. I've heard anecdotes about um, immediately post-Katrina when there were some families that were displaced mm -hmm. and into FEMA trailers, you know, on gravel lots, lots that were graveled over. And a lot of the Vietnamese Americans were growing stuff in the top. Yeah, and people were yep. like, how did you grow vegetables out of the gravel? But it's, you know, the, the community in the East is heavily agricultural. And this climate, it just, it's a good match. Yeah, very good match. Some of the stuff that, you know, we're growing grows like wildfire um, out in the east, you know, <laughs> combined with the heat, the humidity, and just in the right amount of water. Yeah, I'm surprised that, uh, you know, this hasn't been taking off uh, sooner, I guess. Where, what are they growing? Um, in terms Zamung? of... Yeah, Zalmung. Oh, really? Yeah, Zalmung. Well, that's kind of hush-hush. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't hear it here, I, yeah, folks. Yeah. <laughs> Just joking. Ha, 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 ha. Hey, why, why, hypothetically, if they were growing Zalmung, why would that be hush-hush? Because -hush? Um, the FDA, uh, the FDA <laughs> labels it as a noxious weed. Oh, um, really? Yeah, so... But it's delicious. It it's is. A it's, delicious it's a delicious, noxious weed. It's a very delicious, noxious weed. You know, I actually posed the, this, the, the potential solution, LCI. Well, if you ever have an outbreak, you just send me out there with a, 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 a van <laughs> full of Vietnamese... With some garlic. People. Yeah, with some Vietnamese people. We'll, we'll, it's natural control of the noxious weed. You don't have to spray any pesticide. In fact, that's actually, you know, something we wouldn't want. <laughs> right. You know, so... Well, it's too bad they're not growing it out there. It's just... Yeah. <laughs> What else are they growing there? Um, we're growing all types of stuff. Like right now we're growing a Zao Dai, um, which is jute. Um, mm. I like to think of it as like spinach and okra had a child, it would be jute. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, because it tastes like spinach, but it has the <laughs> kind of oily um, byproduct as, as, as okra. okra um, so, so it'd probably be good fried. We haven't fried it. True we Southerner. Yeah. Spoken like a true Southerner. That's right where my mind went. Can you bread it? We could try. I think we, if we could dehydrate it and bread it. it would <laughs> so tell me, what what is the best way to prepare this in Vietnamese um, tradition? Soup, we just uh, chop it up and you just throw it in boiling water and the water just gets really slimy. <laughs> and Sounds you, really appetizing. <laughs> Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the time you spent in Vietnam just recently for yeah. work? Um, so I spent, I think, about a month and a half in Vietnam. It was a trip that was sponsored by Oxfam America to go over there, mainly to participate in the Delta's 2013 conference to look at community resilience in the context of uh, climate change, especially in deltaic regions. From one delta to another. Exactly. Then, huh? And the only delta in the world that's more vulnerable than our Gulf Coast Delta is the Mekong Delta. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So they're facing sea level rise of about a meter a year. Oh, um, goodness. Yeah, which is huge. And they're actually seeing land loss and actually farm land loss every single year very visibly because wow. of salinity intrusion. 
So I was able to spend a lot of time in the south um, in Saigon and then Mien Thay, which is out in the more rural communities uh, south of Saigon to do site visits. Went up to the center to Da Nang Hue, uh, Da Lat and Hoi An to visit some projects out there. I was really inspired by what a lot of folks in Vietnam were doing to learn to live with water and the environment and the changing environment. Interesting. Um, you know, Examples. You, I mean, you had uh, certain communities, for example, where um, the salinity levels were changing so fast in the soil, they were actually starting to grow salt-resistant or salinity-resistant hmm. uh, strains of rice. Oh. Um, huh. Yeah, it was actually, that was really interesting where... There was a village naturally uh, occurring salt resistant. Yeah, yeah, strains, yeah. Or? They brought it from, uh, from my understanding, from the north down to the south. Um, but a really cool one was actually there was a there's a city called Anzang, um, which is bordering Cambodia, um, southwest of Saigon, I believe. And they actually the community members in um, response to recognizing the potential of overfishing created a holiday where they would actually for the entire year raise uh, fingerlings, which are baby fish to release back into the wild as a ceremony to respect mother nature and as a community or in a village understanding they wouldn't fish for an entire month to allow this stock to, to regrow and to realize that we have to learn to live with mother nature you can't overfish so trying to live in in kind of a symbiotic or, or equilibrium if you will so people were creating these kind of holidays in response to the changing climate and, and strain that population growth is having on their local uh, environment or ecology i've got to say this is pretty different from my experience of living there in college mm -hmm. where it was very very common to have heavy use of pesticides from china mm -hmm. what to what level to what extent does that still occur there, i mean that is there's a movement right now especially there's a really great uh nonprofit called action for the city that um is based out of hoi an and uh, hanoi really visionary work around um raising public public awareness of um, the, the negative impacts of uh, pesticide use. Um, so there is still a lot of uh, prevalent pesticide use in the agricultural sector in Vietnam, but there's a huge push, grassroots push, to advocate for Zao San or Zao Sak, which is clean um, vegetables or, or green vegetables and, and advocating for organic, returning to organic practices, hmm. even permaculture practices. Um, you know, the, the folks I met with in Action for the City started a farmer's cooperative in Hanoi called Hanoi Green Roots, Organic Roots, I believe. And they're a um, community-owned farmer's co-op, all organic, and actually using permaculture practices, so very sustainable practices. Um, and they're apparently, they're, they're, you know, talking with other folks that are not affiliated with organizations. They're actually very popular now. So not even just selling to Hanoi in the north, but also their produce is reaching all the way down to the central region and even the south. Hmm. Um, you know, now in Saigon, you know, you go to Quan Ba and all these other districts, you actually see stores that advertise themselves as we are exclusively selling organic or, huh. or clean produce. More you expensive, know. like here? or Yeah, it's a little more expensive, but when you talk about it, there was one interesting woman who told me, you know, if we, if we feed each other inorganic produce, it's kind of like nui chin. Nui chin is the word for to fight against each other, like civil conflict. You're actually, we're killing each other by, mm. by not addressing these issues of inorganic produce as opposed to organic produce. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting um, dialogue around that. And the word, using the word Noichin yeah, has I, a lot of... I'm now realizing, yeah, I yeah. mean, the word war is in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, <laughs> yeah so it's a really intense. They, they're like, we are literally killing each other by, by not addressing these inorganic practices. We're literally, you know, so I was like, wow. <laughs> this comes around to one of Kim's favorite topics of uh, <laughs> warlord movies. movies. Warlord <laughs> movies. <laughs> For their emotional precision. <laughs> 
Um, well, I mean, you're talking about a country that has is almost inured to having to fight, you know. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of kind of references involving war, you know. It's just like, oh. But for us, you know, spoiled Vietnamese Americans, yeah. you know, we're like, ooh. Jian, um, that means war, doesn't yeah. it? She was talking about vegetables. I know. know? So, <laughs> um, so speaking of, you know, introducing Dan into both Vietnamese culture and Vietnamese American culture, I'd love for you to share with us your your contribution to our segment, the Vietiquette segment. Vietiquette, okay. Um, so there's there's. What's really interesting about Vietnamese culture is it's it was segmented into three regions: Miền Bắc, Miền Trung, and Miền uh, Miền Nam, which is the north, the the center, and the south. And what team you go, are you on? Uh, so <laughs> I'm I'm all over the place. I'm all, <laughs> I'm all, <laughs> I have allegiance to all three because my my dad's side is from the center. Uh, my mom's side is Bắc Nam Tư, which is is the term for uh, people from the north who immigrated to the south after 1954, yeah. the Geneva Accord. Um, so I, you know, French, v Vietnamese carpetbaggers of sorts. <laughs> <laughs> more like I would consider them more like akin to Dust Bowl people. <laughs> okay, okay. So '54 is when the French were kicked out yeah. of Vietnam, and yeah. so then Ho Chi Minh started his activity. And a lot of Northerners moved to the South, including my parents, and it sounds like yours as well. Yeah. So this is all context, right? Because the context is these three, these three regions have very culturally distinct practices, even dialects and um, not dialects, but like <coughs> accents. So, for example, hey, like Kuwait, you might as well be another act yeah, dialect. Yeah, as far exactly. As I'm it's 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 like got <laughs> its own like tonal, you know, like like pronunciation of things. Like for example, in the North, you would say Tuan is is weak, and then in the South is Tung. You know, mm -hmm. or like, is like uh, the word for for vegetable is rau, in in the north was with a z, and and rau is 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 in the south with a more of an r or a y sound. Oh, right. um, My mom does a very comical Hui accent. <laughs> oh, it's really good. Does she <laughs> does she go like? Sure. She yeah. does all those weird noises. Yeah. <laughs> See, you know, it's funny because my parents don't speak with a Hui accent unless it's to make fun of other people. You know. <laughs> 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 and what's funny is is the southern accent. Like here is really twangy, super twangy. Yeah, and the reputation is like, oh god, those lazy southerners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then you have the uptight. But you know what's funny is it's like like here you have the uptight Yankee kind of stereotype. You also have the same stereotype in Vietnam where you think the Northerners are all oh, they think. Yeah, exactly. You think you're the well educated, like you know, erudite. Exactly. Um, and the southern degenerates. Yeah, so you have this kind of like. <laughs> Almost, it's it's kind of I would say friendly infighting um, within the three regions. So there's this, it carries over, it spills over to all sectors of life, and it manifests itself kind of comically in the drinking culture, which we call nyo in in Vietnam. So when I went to Vietnam, they are very adamant nyo thelbung, which means you we, we we drink based on where we come from in the region. So what they're saying, and it's kind of a a jab against the north, is when you when you when you clink your your glasses and you say yo, you know, and then. Depending on how much you drink of your cup is where you're from. So they're saying. So for example, this glass uh, is really hard to imagine, right? Imagine you have a full glass of beer. If if after you, if it's just water, listeners. I can imagine that. <laughs> but if you're only taking a sip and it only goes down maybe a quarter of the way, they say you're from the north. Oh. You, you drink like you're a northerner. If you drink halfway, then you drink like you're from Hue, like a, a true central mm -hmm. person. But if you drink all the way, then you're from the south, Gamao, 
which is the, the southernmost uh, town. So when we, we, we went you know, in the south, they said, you have to drink all the way. And they had oh. this, this phrase called Lakkeo, which means like, because in, the, in, in Vietnam, they have these huge cylinders of, of ice that they put in just to kind of prevent your beer from getting too hot. So they, it's kind of a race it's to the so bottom. And There's the, no refrigeration. That's super common. I, exactly. would, I would appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. Cold right? beer. So it's kind of like bottoms up. Is bottoms up. All the way south. Down all down. the way south. <laughs> and if you can do that, you're from the south. And in, the way that you can, the only way that you can really show you're from the south is once you're done, you have to shake your glass. And if you can hear the glass or the ice ring clearly, then that means you're actually done with your beer and you're a true southerner. Gosh, maybe I am a southerner. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> the drinking culture. No, never in mind that. I don't drink like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a good Vietnamese girl. I don't drink like that. But interestingly enough, in Vietnam, we went out with uh, regardless of gender. Actually, you know. Um. <laughs> <laughs> right. So Vietnamese women aren't really supposed to drink. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know that your experience. Wow. <laughs> I think the experience of all our music friends, musician friends, would never guess that that is the cultural norm meeting me. <laughs> but it's New Orleans. It's totally different. It's different. Yeah. I'm so glad to have my Vietnamese horizons uh, being expanded a little wider than Kim Vu here. <laughs> so we can actually put this etiquette to the test. If you all ever come out east, there's a, uh, there's a karaoke bar in Nha Trang. Um, really great place that we go and go and then sing karaoke where we actually do clink our beer cans together, you know, so we can so test this etiquette. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll, I'll say that uh, I'll represent the South. He's, he's <laughs> <laughs> Dan is actually is a musician and a singer, so maybe you can uh, learn something in Vietnamese. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. <laughs> karaoke, right? You know, I think uh, a right. couple of uh, my friends out in the East were thinking about starting a Jing Kong Sun cover band, you know, so if you want to are you kidding? That sounds amazing. Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. Where and besides, I know the karaoke bars, but in the east, are there any actual music venues? Yeah, some- yeah. I mean, there, there. I mean, there's some coffee shops um, where folks will go and congregate and play music and sing to reminisce the old days. Um, but I mean, like a venue for music. I think I mean there are event halls um, for weddings and and big events like that where. Sometimes people will invite bands to come. I mean, I think one year, Ocho, which is a event hall in the East, actually invited Ken Lee, which is a, one of the most famous singers in Vietnamese history, um, nice. to come and perform. Um, yeah. So. Cool. Yeah. Do you live in the East or do you live yeah. on this side of the river? I live in the East. I live probably less than a mile from where I work. Wow. Which is... Good and bad, develop you know, very easy to develop uh, unhealthy working uh, habits, but yeah. great in the sense that you know I can sure walk can. home and then it takes me like forever because you run into a lot of people that you know. Mm-hmm. It's really like a tight knit community that I think I've never seen in my entire life, or at least in the United States. Right. It's not like that in California. I was Definitely I was trying not. to explain that to some to actually Al, the other co-host, the other day. This community is incredibly much more intimate with each other. Exactly. You know, I mean. An example is I grew up in California in the Vietnamese community, and uh, I met actually folks here that grew up in the same block as I did, and we had never met each other. Well, and we both grew up in Southern California yeah, in the Vietnamese community. Exactly. I don't, I didn't know you before. Exactly. So you. you know, so that's here. I feel like from what I've gained in understanding of living and working in this community is that that's almost unheard of. You know, if you if if we don't know each other personally, for example, um, at least our parents will know somebody in her family, and right. then mm-hmm. you know. Then they'll say, oh, we know you're the son of or the daughter of so-and-so-and-so. You know, you went to this school and that school. So 
that doesn't really exist in California where we kind of have numbers here makes up for the tight close knitness of their their community nice. so uh, out of curiosity the urban the vegetables grown through the urban garden are they sold directly to restaurants or can our listeners buy them at the morning market so the, um, for direct consumers for consumers I guess you can go to the Saturday morning market which is it starts around five six o'clock in the morning um, it usually runs out he's at serious yeah. like by eight you just should don't bother. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, By 7, 30, 7, 15, if you're not there and, and church lets out, you're really going to be competing with literally half the community, you know, so recommend that you get out there really, really early. Um, but no other joke. than that, no jokes. you can find our produce at uh, New Orleans Food Co-op, uh, Holly Grove Market and Farm, uh, goodeggs.com now. Um, so other than restaurants, those are the other venues. We're looking to expand to uh, Crescent City Farmers Market and Sankofa Farmers Market in the very near future. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Any other events or, you know, um, things you want our listeners to know about before you before we end the show? Yeah, not really. I mean, we also do tofu and soy milk as well. So um, I know there's a kind of a growing or burgeoning uh, vegetarian vegan movement or community here. So um, yeah. Uh, the Saturday Farmer's Market has a really awesome uh, tofu vendor. She makes her own soy milk. Um, she makes flavored tofu, fried tofu, tofu dessert, tofu anything other than mock meat tofu, I guess. But, yeah, definitely check that out. The tofu um, dessert's really good. Yeah, super good. With the ginger syrup. Yep. You ready for that, Dan? I'll try anything. <laughs> yeah. I think we're going to have to have a, a proxy show out in the east. I would you know, love to do that. We Saturday morning, that. ending with Nyachang at Saturday night, the whole gambit of things. I think that would be <laughs> <laughs> really fun, actually. Yeah. That could be amazing. Dan will be the tallest person in, yeah. in like a yeah. seven-mile radius. The It'll tallest be amazing. person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. You made my mouth water more than once. <laughs> so I'm coming, I'm coming your way, New Orleans East, pretty All soon. Right. That's Vietnola for today. Thank you so much for joining us at home, at work, on your phone, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. And a special thanks to today's guest, Daniel Nguyen. Our show is produced by Kim Vu and Grant Morris. Our technical director is Chris Keogh. Our web guru is Dr. Cliff Brigden. Our theme song, Forcep de Milo, was written by Taylor Smith and performed by the Swamp Lilies. The fabulous audio quality of this show is brought to you in part by PreSonus Audio Electronics. PreSonus makes some of the best audio recording and live sound products, including Studio One music production software, Studio Live digital mixing consoles, Aeris Studio monitors, and much more. Visit www.presonus.com for more information. You can follow us on Twitter at It's New Orleans. You can like us on Facebook. We're at It's New Orleans. And you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can listen to our other Vietnola shows on our website, itsneworleans.com, as well as our other shows Happy Hour, Out to Lunch, Mindset, True the Game, and Midnight Menu Plus One. Keep up with all kinds of fun happenings here at Vietnola by getting on our mailing list. Sign up on our website, itsneworleans.com. Vietnola was recorded today in the city of New Orleans. If you'd like to be a guest on Vietnola, we'd love to have you. Drop us a line. You'll find all the info on our website. Vietnola is produced by INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com. For Kim Vu and everyone here at Vietnola, thanks for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you back here next week for our next episode of Vietnola. Until then, I'm Dan Wally Baker. And I'm Kim Vu. Bye.
You know Labor Day signals the unofficial end of summer, but not the end of your outdoor projects. Lowe's helps you do it right and helps you save with Labor Day deals throughout the store. Shop now and get two bags of Stay Green Potty Mix for $12. And keep your lawn looking neat and trim with a Craftsman 2-Cycle 17-inch gas string trimmer now $20 off at just $119. Whatever's still on your to-do list this Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 828. Soil offer excludes Alaska and Hawaii, U.S. only.